All right, well, good morning again. It's good to see all of you. Is everybody doing okay? All right, well, good. Let me wish you an early happy Thanksgiving. Uh, and like many of you, the Seagulls will be traveling this week. In fact, we'll be leaving early, early tomorrow morning to catch a plane to uh, head to Colorado to see Sarah's side of the family. So I'm very thankful for Sarah's dad's generosity to do that because we couldn't do it on our own. Six tickets, that's a lot. Uh, so thankful for him for bringing us out to see the family. Uh, but if you've ever been to Colorado, and just kind of a show of hands, how many people have ever been to Colorado? Okay, so maybe about half of us. If you, if you haven't and you are able to someday, I'd encourage it. Maybe one of the, maybe the most beautiful state in the lower 48. Uh, but when you get to Colorado, if you've ever been there or if you ever go, when you land, you land kind of in Denver in the prairie, right? And then you, you know, start making your way. There's a long, like, taxiway. You get to the airport. But when you look, everything's flat. But if you look about 30 or 40 miles to the west, there's just this huge, just almost like a wall of mountains, just majestic, gigantic, and it just looks like a, an absolute wall of mountains, all right? Once you get to them, though, when you start driving into them, you start to realize that what you thought was just like this row of straight mountains is actually like they're separated by miles and miles. You get into them and you see how very far apart these mountains are from one another. It's not, as you, you know, from a distance, it looks like it's just one row, but then you get into it and you realize how far apart they are. That's kind of like what we find in Second Samuel chapter 7, where we're going to be this morning. You have all of these prophecies, and they look almost like they're just stacked up, like one right after the other, just a solid wall. But as you begin walking through them, you begin to see that, oh, actually, they're separated by thousands of years. And so from the beginning, just looking at them, it looks like it's a solid wall, but you get into it, and the way God's rolled it out is it's, it's not just one thing. They're actually separated by thousands and thousands of years. And so when we look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, this is commonly referred to by theologians as the Davidic covenant, right? It's a promise that God makes to David that he will establish a forever kingdom, right, through one of David's descendants. And like I said, the way it looks, the way it kind of talks is like it's flat, but as you get into it, you see it's got dimensions. And so just kind of short-term, initial look at it, and he's talking about David's son, Solomon. Some of this is going to be fulfilled by him. But a lot of it, most of it, the most important parts aren't. They're thousands of years later, and they're fulfilled in Christ. His kingdom, his forever kingdom, a kingdom that's already been inaugurated through Jesus' life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and that will be consummated and culminated in the second coming when he comes again. And so 2 Samuel 7 is about all of this. And so no joke, it is one of the most important texts in all of the Old Testament. One of the most important ones. But it doesn't stand alone. It stands on previous covenants, previous promises that God has made to his people, and particularly to Abraham in Genesis 12. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to walk you through this text, but also want to try to help connect some of the big dots of the Bible's overall story. Connect the Abrahamic covenant with the Davidic covenant, with the future coming kingdom, fully consummated kingdom of Christ. And so this morning, maybe it won't be like as linear as usual, 
But it's my hope and it's my prayer that as we, because we're going to be going here and then we're going to be going here and we're going to be going here and we're going to be going over here. But it's my hope that as we walk out of here, we will all have a better understanding of what God's kingdom is all about and how that pertains to our lives as well. And so very much kind of a theological building block kind of text this morning. But like I said, it is a building block, and it's a big deal. One of the most important texts in all of the Old Testament. And so let's just dive into it and kind of look at it. All right? David's on the throne. He's in Jerusalem. So chapter 7, we'll start in verse 1. This is on page 259 in the black hardback Bibles around you. If you have your own Bible, open it up, go to this place. We're going to read through several times. But if you don't have one, grab a black hardback Bible around you. Page 279, actually 259, sorry. I'll start in verse 1. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go. Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And so what's going on here is David and Nathan, all right, the prophet, he's kind of like the nation's uh, pastor, okay? They're hanging out at David's palace one night. They're on the back deck, and they're just kind of talking. And David gets to think, man, it is not right that I live in this house made of cedar, which in that time was like a sign of opulence, all right? So he has a palace. And so it's not right that I have this palace when the Ark of the Covenant, which again, we talked about last week, is like God's, it's a sign of God's presence and God's holiness. And so it's not right, David's thinking, that I live in this really, really, you know, nice palace when the Ark of the Covenant lives in a ratty old tent. And so we've got to do something about this, Pastor. And so Nathan responds, as any pastor would, when a godly rich man comes to him wanting to build something. Do all that's in your heart. Bring the check. We'll start tomorrow. Right? He doesn't speak for the Lord. He just says it. All right? And so that's what's kind of going on. But what happens next is not what usually happens in that context. Nathan does something that most pastors wouldn't do. It's why this has to be a true story. Because most pastors would not do this. The word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And Nathan says to David, No. Keep your check. That's not what the Lord wants right now. And so look at verse 4 with me. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And so what God is saying here is, is, listen, David, I don't need a house in the way that you're thinking about it. Like, like you think you know what I need. You think you know what I, God, need. But you don't. And so, friends, I think this is a lesson for us to be very careful. Because a lot of times our intuitions 
tell us that we should do this or we should do that. And maybe they're even good things. But our instincts tell us this. But they can so easily mislead us at times. Maybe it's not what God wants. I mean, to honor God by building a splendid house for the ark here seemed right to David, given the circumstances that he had. But it's not what God wanted. And so he was wrong about it. It's not what God wanted. J.D. Greer puts it this way. Like so many of us today, David thought of God as a cause in need of good supporters and financial backers. So he was going to give and give big. But God wouldn't have it. I am the giver, God declares. And you are the receiver. And so you want to build me a house, David, but that's not what I want right now. Instead, what I want to do is I want to build you a house. Not of bricks and mortar, but a forever kingdom to accomplish my purpose in this world. To make right all that's gone wrong. Because, friends, that's what the heart of God's covenant with David and God's covenant with Abraham is all about. All right? His covenant with David here that we're going to get into is a furtherance of his covenant with Abraham that Jeff just read about in Genesis 12, where he just shows up to Abram, who is a pagan Iraqi Gentile, and he says, says, Abraham, I know the world's broken. I know that sin abounds, but I'm going to fix it, and I'm going to fix it through you. I'm going to start with you. I'm going to give you a family, and through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. And so here in verse 8, God repeats virtually those same words to David. Look at that with me, starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, declares the Lord. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Right Right here, he's speaking specifically of Solomon here. But again, like the mountain peaks that look so far, you know, they look like right together, but they're actually separated by hundreds of miles. That's what's happening here. He's going to talk about Solomon first. Then he's going to start talking about Jesus. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. So Solomon actually will build a temple someday. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Verse 16, listen. And your house, house meaning dynasty, meaning kingdom, 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So that was a lot, all right? So let's try to unpack this. Again, this is all about God's promise. It's all about his covenant. That's what covenant means. Covenant is a promise. And so God's covenant with Abraham and God's covenant with David is a promise, in a nutshell, to fix the world. It's a promise to make right all that's gone wrong when sin entered the world and messed everything up. Because it's a promise that God is going to once again get, and we're going to hit these words a thousand times today, going to get God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. That's what the promise is all about. That's what the Bible is all about. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, all leading up to having God's people in God's place, once again, under God's rule and blessing. A return to Eden, almost. Because when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, so we start building this out a little bit, what you see there is a pattern of God's kingdom established. And so you've got... Think about it with me. You've got God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. All right? That's what you've got. You've got the pattern of God's kingdom. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. They rebel. They fracture that. All right? This is known as the fall. And then God's covenant with Abraham, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, is basically a promise to restore all that was fractured in the fall of mankind. It's a promise to return God's people to God's place under God's rule and blessing. And so just listen to Genesis 12 again in the Abrahamic covenant that Jeff read just a minute ago. And then I'm going to read God's covenant with Abraham right after it. And I want you to see the parallels, all right? So Genesis 12, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land, God's place, that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, God's people, and I will bless you, ruin blessing, and make your name great. So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so right there is the promise. God's people, God's place, under God's rule and blessing once again. All right. Now listen to it in 2 Samuel 7. It's just restated. Starting at the end of verse 9. And I will make for you a great name. Like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest, all right, blessing from all your enemies. And so, do you hear all that same language? God's people, God's place, God's rule and blessing. Same thing as Genesis 12. It's a restatement of it. But like an optometrist who, you know, keeps asking one or two, one or two, 
choose one or two, and the image becomes clearer and clearer, so here the Davidic covenant helps to clarify the promise to Abraham, helps it to come into focus with a clear picture of a king and a kingdom that will last forever. That's what we see through the rest of the text, specifically verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And so in the New Testament, all right, today's going to be very much a theological building block. I get that. Stay with me. In the New Testament, when you come and you, you know, it announces that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. What that is doing is saying that, that Jesus is the one who is promised in these words right here. He is Matthew 1, 1, genealogy, the son of Abraham and the son of David. Or even as the angel Gabriel announces to Mary before the first ever Christmas Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And so the whole thing here is ultimately about Jesus. He is the son of David. He is the king forever. And unlike Solomon, Jesus would not need to be disciplined with the stripes of men. Instead, he would be bruised for our iniquities, not his own. By his stripes, we will be healed. And so through his life, death, and resurrection, he would build the house of salvation that God had promised. Through his life, death, and resurrection, he would be the one to break the curse of Eden. And in his second coming, he will be the one to finally and fully return God's people to God's place under God's rule and blessing. Because that's what the promises of God that Abraham and David are all about. So that's the covenant. This forever kingdom's coming. And I'm going to get my people back in my place under my rule and blessing. So the question then that we need to spend, I think, the rest of our time on is answering specifically, well, who exactly are or is God's people? And what is this place? What is that all about? Is that the promised land? And what is God's rule and blessing? What is that all about? And so let's start answering those questions. We'll just take them one at a time, I'm actually going to kind of start talking about one, morph over into two for a little bit, then come back to one, and then we'll get into three. I told you it's not as linear as normal. But if this is what the covenant's all about, then we need to understand these terms. And so the first one, if you want to take notes, who are God's people? Who are God's people? All right. Who are the descendants of Abraham that Genesis 15 says will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens? On one level, it's the Israelites, right? It's the Jewish people. 2 Samuel 7, verse 10 says, And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. And so again, on one hand, it's the Israelites, Abraham's physical descendants. But that's just the initial fulfillment. Because note the tense of even that verse there. It's present tense. And I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them. Like, this is future. This hasn't happened yet. 
The ultimate fulfillment is not David. It's not even Solomon and his kingdom. The ultimate fulfillment is looking way beyond that. And so we've kind of been referencing this morning this idea of these, this flat wall. It looks like this. You get into the mountains and you see how it's you know, further apart and separated. Another way you can think of the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament very often are kind of like a sideways funnel. So take a funnel, turn it sideways. It's got an initial starting point. And then as it begins getting fulfilled, you see some initial fulfillments. But as it goes out, greater fulfillments. As it goes out, even greater fulfillments. That's kind of what's going on here. And so you have all these initial fulfillments, but that's not the end. They're still pointing to something else. So, for example, Deuteronomy 18. Moses promises, you know, there's a promise that there's going to come a prophet like Moses. Well, Joshua shows up. That's an initial fulfillment. But the ultimate fulfillment is still looking to Christ. Also in the book of Deuteronomy, it promises that there's going to be a king. All right, well, you get David, you get Solomon, but those aren't the ultimate fulfillments. That's in Christ. So you've got initial fulfillments, but it gets wider and points to something further down the road. These are all, all these things serve as types. They point us to Christ. And so it is also with God's people and even with God's place. Through the pages of Scripture and the years of history, there are partial fulfillments. There are patterns established. There are shadows of the fulfillment, but it's not the substance. And so let me just try to frame all this up, just kind of get us a big picture. Even this isn't going to pull all the strings yet, all right? We've got all these strings, and I'll try to pull them at the end, but let me just try to give us at least a little framework now. And we've explained a little bit. All this idea of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. In the Garden of Eden, right? We, we had God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, under God's rule and blessing. So we had the kingdom pattern established, all right? And so we had the kingdom pattern established. In Abraham, we have the kingdom promised. God will get his people back in his place under his rule and blessing. All right? David and Solomon, we have the kingdom foreshadowed. We have an initial fulfillment of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. When Jesus comes to the earth in his first advent, you have the kingdom at hand because he is God's people he is god's place and he is god's rule and blessing and when christ returns we'll have the kingdom consummated and the finality of god's people in god's place under god's rule and blessing that's the ultimate fulfillment and so kind of jumping ahead to the second question like where is god's place that we keep talking about and i'm sorry i've got this thing's like keeps getting caught on me and so it's, I keep, uh, hopefully I've got it now. And so jumping ahead for a second, where is God's place? We'll come back to the first one in a minute of who are God's people. But jumping ahead, it'll make a little, it puts it together. Where is God's place? When all that we've read, don't miss, and then what we're about to read, that Abraham and David, neither one looked at the promised land as God's ultimate fulfillment of place. Like they knew that it wasn't it. They knew that. It, it was for a season, but that's just an initial fulfillment. Neither of them saw it as the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. That would be absolutely low-balling what God promised them. God's promise was not just a little sliver of 
soil in the Middle East. He promised them the earth, a new earth, new heavens, the restoration, the culmination. That is what they are looking forward to. That's the real promised land Abraham was looking forward to. New heavens and new earth, restoration of all things. And so, for example, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 4 verse 13, he doesn't talk about the land of Canaan. He talks about the world. He says, for the promise of Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, is what Paul writes, did not come through the wall, but through the righteousness of faith. And so as one guy puts it, the land of Canaan in Genesis becomes the world in Romans. And so we've got to understand that the New Testament interprets and expands the Old Testament. Like the promises are literally and, and faithfully carried out, but in a greater way than often first understood. Again, sideways funnel. Initial fulfillments pointing to a greater reality. And so God's ultimate promise to Abraham is a whole lot more than that little sliver of land in the Middle East. His promise is new heavens and new earth. Hebrews 11, skipping down to verse 13 now, is helpful again. These all died in faith, not... not having received the things promised. Right? Abraham never got the promised land. Never happened, though it had been promised to him. Not just his descendants, to him. He never got it. He had a cave. That's all he ever had. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So there is a new heavens and there is a new earth with a new Jerusalem, that's the real promised land. That's God's place that he's going to get us back to. Where we will live and dwell under his good rule and blessing. New heavens, new earth. That's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. He will do that. It's a return to Eden in a way. But getting back, so that's God's place. New heavens, new earth. That is the ultimate promised land. But getting back to the first question, who is this group known as the people of God? Well, for one, again, it starts with Abraham, right? He's the father of God's people because of God's absolute sovereignty. He starts with him. He chooses to. And because he trusted God. 
And it was credited to him as righteousness. All right? And so because of his faith in God and God's promises, God credited Abraham as righteous. Not because of his actions. You see the gospel here? It wasn't Abraham who did anything. God chose. Abraham was not... I mean, Abraham, if you read the book of Genesis, he had issues. Like real ones. Right? I mean, if you read, he pimped his wife out to save his own skin. Twice. And then his son did the same thing. He had, and, and more than that. He's got all of these issues. Which gives me great hope if God can work through a clown like that and a clown like David, praise the Lord, he can work through us. But the people, God's people, it starts with Abraham. And these promises were made to his descendants. But the question then are, who are his descendants? Is it ethnic Israel? Is it physical descendants? Is that who these promises were made to? Let's flip over to the New Testament again. As we kind of looked at today, the New Testament often interprets and expands what is less clear in the Old Testament. And so particularly, let's go to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. So here's the context here. When you go to Romans chapter 9, Paul... The context is that Paul is coming to the reality and he's just admitting the heartbreaking truth that many of his Jewish kinsmen have rejected Christ. And so they are thus cursed, accursed under God's condemnation for their unbelief. But if those are God's people, the physical descendants of Abraham and David, how could God condemn them? If ethnic Israel is the descendants to whom the promises were made, how can God do that? Has the word of promise to Israel failed? And Paul responds with a resounding no. So Romans chapter 9, look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, physical descendants, but the children of the promise, faith, that are counted as offspring. And so in other words, God's promises have not failed because the promises were never intended for every physical descendant of Abraham. They weren't intended for that. Just as Isaac, not Ishmael, was the child of promise, and Jacob, not Esau, was the child of promise, so also throughout Israel's history there have been a true remnant within Israel who are the heirs of the covenant blessings. A true and spiritual Israel within ethnic Israel, if you will. And so the hard reality that Paul is coming to grips with here is that the rest aren't the seed of Abraham. Because even though they trace their physical descent to him, they do not share his faith. They do not share his obedience. And so that's why John the Baptist said to the unrepentant Jews, do not say we have Abraham as our father. And then Jesus said to the Jews who rejected him, if you were Abraham's children, you would do what Abraham did. And Paul himself lays it out like this earlier in Romans. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. 
nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so the big point we need to see here in Romans 9 is that many Israelites, in fact, most Israelites, were not the seed of Abraham that will inherit the promise. Because, like the majority of the world, they don't believe in Christ. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. And so God's people, Abraham's true descendants, is not based upon ethnicity. Rather, it's based upon faith. And so Galatians 3, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 14, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Verse 26, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. And so in the end, Paul is saying, who will and who will not inherit the promises is not based upon ethnicity, Jew or Greek. Neither is it about your gender, male or female, or socioeconomic class, slave or free. But as one pastor puts it, the only relevant criterion is whether or not you are related by faith to the one seed of Abraham for whom the covenant promises were intended. The question is, are you in Christ? And if so, regardless of ethnicity, gender, or socioeconomic status, you, no less than Christ, are Abraham's seed. And are part of the ones for whom the covenant was intended and in whom the covenant blessings will be fulfilled. They were never intended to be ultimately fulfilled in ethnic Israel, but rather true and spiritual Israel. Everyone who has faith that's been credited to them is righteousness. That is, all believers of all time, across all geographic locations, whether Jews or Gentiles grafted in. And this group of people is known in the New Testament as the church. It's all of God's people, whether Jews or Gentiles. And listen, Ephesians 3, 4 says this is a mystery. All right? But nevertheless, it is the reason why Peter takes special titles and privileges reserved for Old Testament Israel and applies them freely to the New Testament church. Quoting from Exodus 19, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 9, that the church is a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And again, he's quoting Exodus 19. The church now, not Israel, is a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's 
own possession. And so, so Galatians, again, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. That's God's people. So there was initial fulfillment, and then there's this greater fulfillment. The people of God, made up of all who will believe, regardless of whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. And so these thousands of years old covenants, these promises to Abraham and to David of a new heaven and a new earth, of all that's gone wrong being made right, what this means then is that it's, this promise is open to anyone who will believe. It is fully inclusive of anyone, regardless of background, if they will simply repent and believe the good news. Recognize, the, first, the bad news that they are sinners, that they are broken and they are in need of grace, they're in need of mercy, they're in need of forgiveness, and that Jesus has come to give them that. That Jesus came and lived the life they didn't. He did it for them. He died a wrath-absorbing death for their sins in their place that they deserve to die, but Jesus did it for them. And he walked out of the grave victorious for all time over sin and death and proclaiming a cosmic yes. That because I did that, everything is true. And so God is working to ultimately bring about a restoration where for all eternity, God's people, all who will believe, will be in God's place, new heavens and new earth, under God's rule and blessing. And so then number three, really quick, what is that? What is God's rule and blessing? What is, what is God's blessing? Well, there's a lot of them, but the biggest blessing is that we get God. That is the biggest blessing. We, that we get God. Like, like God is what makes heaven, heaven. Heaven would not be heaven if it's everything, streets of gold and, and meeting our family members. No, it's not heaven unless Jesus is there. That's the ultimate blessing. That's the ultimate gift that once again, like Adam and Eve once had, we will have full and unhindered fellowship with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And so seeing our passed away relatives who were Christians and are therefore in heaven, that's going to be awesome. I look forward to that. I've, got a, I've never met my granddaddy Seagull. Never met him. I look forward to meeting him. That's going to be great. And chatting with Abraham and David, that's going to be amazing. And finding out all these questions that I have. God, how did this roll out? And how did this roll out? And how did this happen? That's going to be great. I've got a lot of questions. But ultimately, what makes heaven such a blessing is that Jesus is there. See, as one guy put it, the gospel is not merely that Jesus died and rose again. Not merely that these events appease God's wrath, forgive sin, and justify sinners. And not merely that this redemption gets us out of hell and into heaven, but that they bring us to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ as our supreme all-satisfying and everlasting treasure. The thing that makes the good news good is that we get Christ. We get God, unhindered, forever. Perfect fellowship. No more sin. No more separation. That's what makes the gospel such good news. 
But what does that mean then for us here today? Because we're not in the new heavens and the new earth. We're in a broken world. We're in a world that is still messed up. It still has sin and it has natural disasters and, and just, it's just broken. Things happen. So what does that mean for us here? With the heart of both the promise to Abraham and the promise to David, the promise that God makes to all of God's people is that God will be God to us. Now, he will be God to us. And so in Jeremiah 32, for example, he says this, They shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will not turn away. Listen to this. I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will rejoice in doing good to them with all my heart and all my soul. This, even in this broken world, is God's promise to you. And it doesn't mean that in this broken world that everything's going to be hunky-dory. Right? Cancer's still going to come. Death is still going to come in a broken world. Tragedy is still going to strike. You don't even know when it's coming. It's going to happen. But it does mean that the God who made the universe... Remember, we've got to get a bigger God. The God who made the universe filled with 100 billion galaxies, with 100 octillion stars. The God who made everything and controls everything down to the molecules and the protons and neutrons and electrons. This God, he rejoices to do good to you with all of his heart and soul. And so, as John Piper puts it, the covenant promise that God will be your God is spectacular beyond imagination. Because it means that God engages all his omnipotence and all his omniscience all the time to do good to you with all his heart and with all his soul in all the circumstances of your life, whatever they might be. That's incredible. It doesn't mean everything's hunky-dory. We all have things in our lives that haven't gone the way we expected, the way we thought, the way they... But it does mean that He's with us always in the midst of all of this. And so with Paul... What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Like, who could do that? Not really anyone, because it's God who justifies. Like, God's the one who has the right to do that, but he justifies. Who's to condemn? Well, Christ could condemn us, but Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
But no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so, friends, all of this is happening. God is getting his people in his place under his rule and blessing. The kingdom pattern, he was established in Eden. With Abraham, you had it, uh, the kingdom promised with David and Solomon. You had the kingdom foreshadowed with Jesus on earth. You had the kingdom at hand when Christ returns. We'll have the kingdom consummated. And for all time, God's people will be in God's place under his rule and blessing. Such that Revelation 21, that I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the blessing. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. This is what 2 Samuel 7 is looking forward to. And this is the hope of all of Abraham's true children. Let's pray. Father, we look forward to that day where we live in a broken world and we live by faith here, trusting your promises. And we thank God, we thank you with all of our hearts and all of our soul that you are working good in the midst of this brokenness with all of your heart and with all of your soul. And you are bringing us home to a new country, to a new city, to a new heavens and a new earth where gone will be death and gone will be sin and we will have you unhindered and unfettered forever and ever with every day being better than the one before. And so we long, Jesus, for you to come. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. But until that day, Lord, let us be faithful here because you have left us as a church a mission to live holy lives before you now and to lead others to know you and become your children adopted by you through faith in Christ. And so, Father, let us be captivated by what matters most in this life. And let us not be sidetracked.
sidetracked by so often being super successful in things that don't matter. Help us to succeed in the things that matter to you. In Christ's name.